During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. And now I'll get right into the second half of what I started last week, Enduring the Unimaginable Part 2, Jews and Romans in the Aftermath of uh, the Destruction of 70 AD, Jewish and Jewish Culture. uh, I ended up last time by making the point that this period... This is the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and so forth of the first century CE. Uh, is uh, sees the beginnings of the rise of Christianity, which is which is a form of Judaism at the beginning, as I'm sure everybody's basically aware. Uh, they are the formative years of the new sect, the years it slowly moves from becoming a kind of Judaism into a religion of its own. This has to do with four basic features. It's an interesting story, and tells you very much about what Judaism was like by looking at sort of like the, the, the alternative image, four basic features of Judaism that were not so easy for Gentiles to swallow whole hog, if I can use that expression, in, in that era. And I'm referring, of course, as you can see over here, I can't see it, but you can. we got universal, universalism, particularism, um, monotheism, and messianism, all of which uh, we're kind of basically familiar with. We may not frame it exactly in those terms, but you should. Now, the remarkable thing about the guy we talked about at the end of last time, the Senator Flavius Clemens, but that's a true story. He was going to be the heir of the, uh, the uh, Caesar, of, of Domitian. And his kids, all of whom were killed at the last minute, is that these people were willing to become, here I go again, whole hog, they want to become fully Jewish, circumcised, and all the rest of it, in spite of um, Judaism's particularism. They were not turned off by that. Judaism is, if you think about it, after all strange, in its combination of universalism and particularism. I mean, we believe Hashem is the God of everything, of everyone, there are no others. That's a message that resonates even with philosophical Romans. You won't believe this, Caligula, that nut. Uh, I'm sure you know, many of you know who he was. Uh, if you read closely, you'll find at one point he uh, orders the Jews in his time to put a statue of himself in the uh, temple, and the Jews go crazy about it, and then he says, kill all the Jews. And then one of the Jews, Herod Agrippa, who's a friend of his, a fellow party animal, as they would say, and he writes him a letter and said, listen, the Jews have an invisible God. It's beyond description of the rest of it. And as a philosopher, you can see that point. And Caligula said, you know, you're right, I, I, I hear that, which is kind of interesting. So as I say, the notion that there's a single God that's in charge of everything is a message that resonates even with philosophical Gentiles, Romans. It plays to certain strains of uh, philosophical and even healthy religious thought. On the other hand, the God of everything, who created everyone, has favorites. He has beloved sons, to whom he gives coats of many colors, and the others, for whom he feels far less affection. What a turnoff. No? It's called Judaism. <laughs> okay? Um, the Rambam 
And a famous letter called the letter to Yemen, the Gerus Tema, uh, puts it better than, than anyone else can. It puts it very, very frankly. And he, you know, in the, in the Rambam's time, he lived in the 12th century in the Middle East. And one of the things that happened over there was uh, a certain wave of Islamic religious persecution in Yemen. And so he's writing to them about it. And he's trying to be mechazic them, strengthen them in their Judaic beliefs. And he says, you should know, number one, that the Torah given us is true. The greatest of all the prophets gave it. In other words, Moses, not Muhammad. You have to understand something, my friends, who are living under the conditions of Islamic persecution in Yemen. You've got to understand one thing. By giving the Jews the Torah and not giving the others the Torah. He's separating them out for special mention from all the other nations. It's not because we were racially superior. The Rambam isn't into that. Some other Jewish authors were. The Rambam is not. It's not because we are racially superior. It's because of God's chesed, because of his kindness, and the fact he wanted to bestow good upon us, because he owed our parents. Because of Rambam Yitzhak Yaakov. Oh, you're so-and-so's grandson? I remember when I first came to this country, he lent me a good, you know, that kind of thing. Shen Namar, and he is to back it up. And if you buy into the story, then since God special or separated us out, he was miachid us, through giving us, and not others, these laws, his laws, and by there, he demonstrated our superiority because he said, I'm giving you the coat of many colors. I'm giving you the laws. The chukim and the mishpatim and all the other things and not the others. Um, all the other nations got very jealous and angry at us ever since then. And their leaders, their kings, as he puts it, have from time immemorial, uh, on account of this, tried to unleash against this hatred and anger and unfortunately, they don't, for them, they don't succeed because it's God's plan. What can you do about it? They're around like a superiority of a Jew. I get it. That's a turnoff if you're not Jewish, agreed? Yeah? There's a certain racism, or you could look at it that way. I'm simply bringing this out. Now, let's put us in the year 70 or 80 or 90 or whatever, of the common era. And now you have these Jews going around saying, Jew, 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 Jew. And let's say you're not Jewish. There are certain aspects of Judaism which you turn on. But on the other hand, certain aspects that turn off. You've got to see. And so as I said before, this God has, uh, you know, uh, certain favorites. And no one, no child ever likes it. The brothers of Joseph didn't like it when he gave him the, the special coat. And it's a famous chazal, to be perfectly honest. There's a famous statement in the Talmud which says, Harsinai, Mount Sinai, is a sino. Sounds like hatred. And you understand what that means. The anti-Semitism begins... With Shavuos. It's a happy thought. Now, uh, while there were certainly many who quite remarkably converted to Judaism in spite of this particularism, I mean, that's really a Garrett setting. person says, I'm willing to come in as a second class person, and I'm glad you're, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful you're taking me on board and all the rest of it. It is also true that during this time, there were many who were attracted to certain aspects of Judaism, but who were repelled by its racism and would not convert. They might come to show. And did. They might listen appreciatively to the Torah readings in Greek with its edifying messages, especially when explained by the Maturgamon, 
I mean, if you have a rabbi friend explaining the parsha of the week, and he's talking in Greek language, not using yeshiva language, so anybody can understand it, and you talk about Pinchas, right, and Bolok, and these are universal, if you know how to do it, they're universal, so people like, might like to come and hear that, but they would, these people who would show up in the synagogue would not renounce their own nationality and customs. They would not, like Ruth, say, your people is my people, meaning my former people are no longer mine. It's a lot to ask from someone. So these are fundamental tensions that characterized the exotic place of Judaism and its synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. You just got to understand this. The Roman elite, in particular, resented this particularism. Because after all, you're not the word about it. <laughs> What are you taking my job for? The Roman elite were offended by the fact that a race that had been conquered, a race that had showed itself to be politically incompetent, a race whose personal manners, what shall we say, turn off, should nevertheless exercise a fascination on its conquerors, even upon members, as we've seen, of the imperial family. We, you can just imagine a little bit what it's like. How can you continue to be so religiously arrogant after you've been crushed and the temple of your God has been destroyed? Such arrogance is insufferable. What they really mean is this arrogance is reserved only for us. Uh, a perfect example of this Roman resentment, and I've read it many times, and different audiences, is found in the writings of Tacitus, uh, the most famous uh, the Roman senator, who wrote exactly at this time, in the 80s and the 90s, precisely at the time we're speaking about. Um, he's the most famous Roman historian, a member of the upper class, upper cross, so he went to what we would call today Harvard and Cambridge and Yale and so forth, the, the best of the best, and all the Latin people, if you remember, from uh, high school or wherever, you got to read Caesar's uh, Wars and you got to read Tacitus. Okay? Those are the classics. So anyway, uh, but he was a senator. He wasn't Jewish. And um, he's the most famous of Roman historians. And he writes about, and he, didn't li and he lived, like I say, he wrote this not long after the Chorban Beis Amigdash. He writes about the Jews. And what does he know about the Jews? And he wasn't Jewish, of course. So uh, he knows what he heard. And what, what has he heard? Um, let me read you a piece from here, very famous. It's always very often quoted and kind of cute because it represents like the game of telephone, you know, if I tell you who's this person and you heard from somebody, heard from somebody, heard from somebody, otherwise known as Shaduchim, you know. The, uh, <laughs> being now, let me, uh, and it's, of course this is in this good old classic Latin uh, and translated in the 18th century, so we have two independent clauses constantly connected by semicolon. I love this stuff. You know, he says, being now about to relate the catastrophe of the celebrated city of Jerusalem, it seems fitting I should unfold the particulars of its origin. The Jews, we are told, escaping from the island of Crete at the time when Saturn was driven from his, from his throne, settled in extreme parts of Libya. So that's who we are. We're Cretans. Uh, that's C-R-T-A-N. <laughs> okay? Uh, we're Cretans. Well, I'm going to tell you something. It's, it's fun always to play a detective. Uh, how are we from Crete? The answer is the Philistines are. The Palestinians are. It says in the Chumash. Kaftarim. Okay? And so it's got a little, uh, you know, bingled along the way. Uh, the name is, is adduced as, as proof because there's a well-known mountain in Crete called Ida. And so the neighboring Edians are called the Judeans, and they go the Judeans, and there you get it. So that's one theory. It's a theory. Other, some say that the population overflowing throughout Egypt in the reign of Isis was relieved by emigration into the neighboring countries 
under the conduct of Risolimus and Judah, of Jerusalem and Judah. These are the two Jewish leaders. That's kind of true. There was a big population of Jews in Egypt at one time. There's a story to it, but there's a population of Egypt. And they were, over, over, they were relieved by emigration into the neighboring countries. Right? They weren't exactly led by Jerusalem and Judah, but what the heck. Many state that they're the progeny of the Ethiopians. Interesting. Who were impelled by fear and detestation to change their abode in the reign of King Siphius. So here we have an ancient uh, report of the Jews originating from Ethiopia. There are those who report that they're a heterogeneous band from Assyria, from Ashur. That's actually true. Uh, our forefathers come from Ur Khazdim, from Ashur, from Iraq. We're all Iraqis here. Right? And a people who, being destitute of a country, made themselves master of a portion of Egypt and subsequently settled in cities of their own in the Jewish territories and the parts bordering on Syria. Others, ascribing to the Jews an illustrious origin, say that the Solomai, Yerushalayim, Solomai, who are celebrated in Homer, called the city they built Risalima after their own name. So we're refugees from the Trojan Wars. Okay? So the point is like this. He doesn't know the Jews are, nor does he care that much. He just reports what people say at parties. Right? When they have them up together. The problem is, these are the decision makers in Rome. Okay? And so what's the nature of the accuracy of their information? To be perfectly honest, how much did we know when we got in Vietnam? To be perfectly honest, how much did we know very recently when we got in Iraq? How much do we know even today what's really going on in Afghanistan? Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about the decision makers. There's always the few eggheads and intellectuals that actually know what they're talking about. But the people that do all the decision making, I don't know. True? I'll ask you about, which I won't, you know, what's really the nature of these kinds of, we don't know. And so, very many authors agree in recording that pestilential disease, which disfigured the body in a loathsome manner, spread over Egypt, Bacchus being the king, he went to the oracle of the god Jupiter in Hamon in request of remedy, was directed to purify his kingdom and exterminate the race of men as being detested by the gods. So this is the old Greek argument. I've spoken about this elsewhere, where you know you didn't leave Egypt, you were thrown out. You were thrown out because of public health menace. That's what the Egyptians put out after the Septuagint. Uh, that a mass of people searched out and collected together were in a wild and barren desert abandoned to their misery when all of them bathed in tears and torpid with despair. Moses, one of the exiles, admonished them not to look for any aid from gods or men being deserted by both, but to trust themselves to him alone as a heaven-sent guide by whose aid they had already warded, warded off the miseries that beset them. They agreed and they commenced a journey not knowing where they were going and next thing you know they're all stuck with a, a lack of water and they're dying of thirst in the desert and Moses, he goes on to say, finds uh, uh, some water in a rock, you know, in, in a little oasis or something like that, and that's how they do it. And they march off, and a few days later they take over Israel. It's a certain version of the story, um, but it, it's like it's like telephone. In other words, you, you recognize parts of it. Okay, this is true, by the way, with all kind of propaganda, even today, and the anti-Semitic propaganda, anti-Israeli propaganda. We we see pieces of it. It's just how you put it together that makes it toxic. Anyway, here's the point. This is Tacitus writing. In order to bind the people from all time to come, Moses prescribed for them a new form of worship opposed to all the world besides. This is absolutely true. Whatever is held sacred by the Romans with the Jews is profane. And what is in other nations unlawful and impure with them is permitted. The figure of the animal through whose guidance they slaked their thirst and were enabled to terminate their wanderings, which was an ass. Um, is consecrated at the sanctuary of their temple because it was a very commonly 
wide belief that in the Kodesh HaKadoshim is a golden donkey with a boy and all made out of solid gold. It's a very famous story. The Kusin put this out in the beginning, and it's very well known, uh, Plutarch, I think, said, or Josephus, that when Pompey, the famous Roman general, captured the base of Migdash the first time, this is not when they destroyed it, it's in 63 or so, they're about 62 BCE, um, time of Julius Caesar, he ran to the high priest and says, where's the golden ass, where's the golden donkey? And you know, he could barely persuade him that it was a legend. But here you are, a hundred and some years later, and you say, oh, everybody knows that. While in contempt of Jupiter Hamon, they do sacrifice the ram, all of which is true. We believe the carbon peso you the god of Egypt. The ox, worshipped in Egypt for the god Apis, is slain as a victim by the Jews. They abstain from the flesh of swine. Now, why did he do that? A Roman couldn't understand that. I mean, that's the easiest meat. It must be from the recollection of the loathsome affliction which they had formerly suffered from leprosy, to which the pig is often subject. Okay? So they turn the fact that the Jews don't eat pork to the fact that everybody knows the Jews are leprous, dirty, scumbags. You know what's sitting next to a Jew. Very common in the Roman writings. Jews are ugh. Um, the famine, for which they went a long time distressed, is still commemorated by frequent fastings that they also couldn't understand. Why would people actually voluntarily fast? Plus, it was a common Roman belief, incorrect, that Shabbos is a fast day. Just happens to be. You know, the, 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 um, other Romans didn't think that way, but many did. Um, and the Jewish bread made without leaven is a standing evidence to their stealing of corn on the way out of Egypt. Okay? This is... I know we laugh. This is how they condescend. They look down upon the Jews. Flavius Clemens would join that junk. This Roman dignitary or that one would even be interested in this. You get it? Uh, but, but they are. Uh, they say they instituted a rest on the seventh day because that brought them rest from their toils. But afterwards, charmed with the pleasures of idleness, the seventh year, too, was devoted to sloth. <laughs> well, you got Shemitah, don't you? Can you imagine to a Roman or anybody, the farmers just sitting there all Shemitah year doing nothing? It, it doesn't compute. You get it? The Romans can only say Jewish religion, insane. Okay? The same thing we say about someone else, or they say about us. Uh, others allege that this is an honor uh, given to Saturn because the religions were handed down by the Edeans and Saturn and so forth. These rituals and ceremonies, howsoever introduced, have the support of antiquity. Now, these are old institutions, and to a Roman, to a Greek, anything that's been around for a long time, no matter how weird, deserves respect on account of its antiquity. There are other institutions which have been extensively adopted. Which have been extensively adopted. Too many non-Jews picking this stuff up. Their other institutions are tainted with execrable knavery. For the scum and refuse of other nations, renouncing the religion of their own country, or in the habit of bringing gifts and offerings to Jerusalem, hence the wealth and grandeur of the state. There you got it. You know, how could people fall for this? And because faith is inviolably observed and compassion is cheerfully shown towards each other, while the bitterest animosity is harbored against all others. The Jews stick together. It's a clan. They have to cheat everybody else. They eat and lodge with each other only. And though a people of unbridled lust admit no intercourse with women from other nations. So you can't win, you know. <laughs> if you do this, uh, among themselves, no restraints are imposed. Okay? So he's got 
quite a, but look, he was a great writer. You can't take it away. You know, just from the literary point of view, the guy's doing a good job. Um, <laughs> that they may be known by a distinctive mark, they have established the practice of circumcision. Which is interesting. The Romans could, definitely couldn't figure out that. Well, that's barbaric. We'll see later on. That's one of the reasons that provokes the Barcochle Rebellion, actually, in time of Adrian. The Romans and the Greeks saw circumcision as just nuts. You understand? Uh, unless medically indicated. But otherwise, it's crazy, and it can only be a mark of distinction in the worst possible way, meaning you're inferior. We're to circumcise, you're not members of the club. They're kind of right about that. That is sort of like what the Torah says. You see? And so once again, I emphasize the point that if someone were not Jewish, it's totally understandable that they'd be turned off by all this. Um, all who embrace their faith must submit to the same operation. The first thing they instill into their converts is to despise the gods, abjure their country, and set at naught parents, children, and brothers. It's like you hear nowadays. The guy became from, they cut the whole family off. Okay? They show concern, however, for the increase of their own population, since it's forbidden to put any of their brethren to dead. And it goes on and on about all these kinds of... Uh, so I don't need to read anymore. I made my point. Uh, you can read it sometimes yourself. It's probably online. I'm sure it is. Because uh, these are classics, meaning these are statements that have been endlessly uh, repeated by scholars down the ages. And I simply share it with you because if you want to know what the Romans think of these weirdos, then this is it. And then imagine what it is to a Roman who's this really, who truly was the ruling power, who truly was the ruling race. And the Roman literature, especially at this time, this is right after Augustus, when the Romans are on top, you have all these famous Roman writers who say Rome has given the world law and order and domination and this and that and the other. So why, are you, why are you giving it to the Jews? How come there's no Mishagas that everybody wants to become an honorary Libyan, an honorary Gaul, an honorary Briton? Why the Jews? You see? If you think that's not good enough, how about Trijuvenal? You ever have to learn that in high school and college? The famous satirist, Juvenal, who, who uh, he's always writing the satires. He can't stand the Jews, can't stand the people in Rome who are adopting Jewish customs. He's writing about this lousy scene of a poor Jewish family on Friday night. It's cool. He says, look, I, I have it in front of me. You can read it on the screen. Some have had a father who, he's, some have a father like this, and some have a father like that. He's making fun of them. And some who have a father who reveres the Sabbath, worships nothing but the clouds, because there's no idols. He can't understand. So to him, they're worshiping the clouds. And the divinity of heavens, which to him is ridiculous. In other words, the Jew will stand there and look up to Shemayim, and pray that way to Rome. So who are you talking to? <laughs> you know, Here's the statue. What are you looking up there for? And see no difference between eating swine's flesh, from which their fathers abstained, and that of man. Notice they think eating a pig is like you're being a cannibal. How ridiculous. And in time, they even take the circumcision. Why would a Roman do that? Now, you understand? I'll repeat. He's talking about Romans who are Judaizing. Having been wont to flout the laws of Rome... They learn and practice and revere the Jewish law. That's terrible. And all that Moses committed to his secret tomb, forbidding to point out the way to anyone not worshipping the same rites. That's ridiculous, but that's how he understands it. And conducting none but the circumcised to the desired fountain. What's this business they go to mikvah and all? What's, what's, what's that all about? For all which the father was to blame, who gave up every seventh day to idleness, keeping it apart from other concerns of life. So basically what he's saying, I'll tell you what, he, I'll, I'll translate. The father, a generation earlier, was a semi-Judaizer. He adopted a couple of Jewish customs. 
but he was a Roman. And so he went to shul sometimes, started keeping Shabbos, sort of. The kids took it too far. They circumcised. They come totally from, <laughs> you know. They only conduct fellow members to the fountain. They keep the law. They abstain from swine's flesh. They're, like they say there, Meshuggah from. You see? And he, as a, as a Roman Roman, is, is complaining about this. It's a bitter satire. Or if you wish, try Perseus. Again, a very famous Roman satirist from, the, from exactly this time. These guys are writing in the 70s and 90s. And what does he say? He's forget about sleep. Who is the internet? Or when the days of Herod the Jew are here. That's what he calls Shabbos, Friday night. He can't stand it. He walks in the neighborhood. He sees Roman families on Friday night meal. And the lamps wreathed with violets. Poor family. They can't afford the fancy stuff. And say so Shabbos candles. But you want to do a little, you know, what's the right word? Hidder mitzvah? Wreathed with violets. Set in the greasy window, vomit oily vapor, and the tunny fish, the tuna fish, tail swims, encircling the red bowl. So you want fish on Friday night? Encircling the red bowl, while the white jug brims with wine, and you move your lips silently, grown pale at the Sabbath of the circumcised. The Roman sees the Jew going, making kish, doesn't understand what he's saying, or he just sees the lips moving, and the whole thing is such a profound turnoff. And it's invading Rome itself let alone the areas of the empire, this is just terrible. And so, if you want to understand the social history of the population of the Roman Empire, of 40 to 50 million people, we have to see that there did exist a large population, at this time, of uh, believing pagans, yes, but also a large population of what I call half-pagans. You know, now, the common term, as I'm sure we all know, unfortunately, is half-Shabbos. And you all know what I'm talking about. The kids are texting on Shabbos. It's the newest thing. So... I can't believe nobody knows what I'm talking about. You're all liars. Anyway, the, uh, <laughs> you keep what you want to keep in kids from religious family, but they keep something, they don't keep another. It's, it's a common feature of our times, or, or increasingly so. And that was the same thing at that time with the Gentiles. Yeah, Except they're there. They're half pagan or half Jewish. In other words, they're in the middle. This in the middle group is huge, growing. Uh, growing very much. There was, in general, a general crisis of paganism dating back to Alexander the Great and really back to Socrates. Um, the old Greek religion of Zeus and everything worked for Greece for a long time. People believed in it, you know, 100%, 90%, but they believed in it basically, and it gave the Greeks a cultural context and, and, and a structure in life. It promoted law and order, a family, in the way they saw it. Um, duty to the state, patriotism, culture. And you weren't supposed to ask the question, how do you know it's true or not? That, that you're not supposed to do. Then comes along this jerk named Socrates. He starts asking the question, how do you know it's true? And he, you know, led the, he popped the balloon. Or he began the process of popping the balloon, for which, of course, they killed him. As they say, he corrupted the, the, the use of essence. Um, because they said, how do you know? How do you know? Why, why? Prove it, prove it. And uh, this launched the whole enterprise of what we call classical Greek philosophy. You know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, people come after that, who really uh, are atheists in the sense that they don't believe in the Greek gods. Uh, they say you want to, you know, use them in state ceremonies, or, you know, that's, that's okay, as long as, but, but we philosophers know better, you see? Well, that kind of skepticism, you know, popped up right before Alexander the Great uh, conquered Greece, he crushed Greece, 
and then spread the Greek culture throughout the uh, Middle East, the Persian Empire of 127 provinces, which Alexander, as we know, conquered. And his successors, who were called the Hellenistic sovereigns, presided with dictatorial states. There were dictatorships like North Korea uh, over Egypt and uh, the Assyrian Empire, huge territories. And the problem was, after a while, not too, not, not, it didn't take too long, till increasing numbers of pagans started to say, is this real or not? They heard from the philosophers as baloney. They heard from others as baloney. When the kings call themselves like Antiochus, the Amma God, it gets triple baloney. When you see that the state religions are all about form and have no religious content, and the corruption of the priests and all the rest of it, uh, this spread all throughout the uh, pagan world. Uh, now, there were plenty, I don't want to overstate the case, there were plenty of people that's very comfortable with the old-time religion, thank you very much, but there were plenty that weren't increasingly so. And so we find that uh, philosophy, for example, well, thought in general uh, became weakened because the culture and the religion became weakened. And generally in history, when a, when a religion becomes weakened, it's not replaced by a better religion, it's usually replaced by cults and weirdisms. That's generally the way it goes. Because a religion means it's been around for a long time, and over the course of being around for a long time, it's learned to adapt to human needs and, 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 and uh, foibles, shall we say. You understand? You sinned, don't do it again, come back tomorrow. Right? In Judaism, they do teshuva, the Catholics will say this way, the Protestants will say that way, the Muslims will say another way, but nobody says, oh, you, you sinned, it's all over. Um, Cults aren't like that. If I say burp, you know burp, well, you get killed. Uh, Jim Jones, you know, things like that. And so this became very common in the uh, Hellenistic era, as we call it, and was still common at the time that the Roman Empire spread into the Middle East and, and took it over. Um, a lot of Egyptian-type ideas become popular. The Egyptians are full of mystical and uh, magical kinds of uh, notions, very, very un-Jewish to us. I'll return to that a little bit later. And uh, in this era, people began looking, for, some people began looking for alternatives, especially intelligent people. But sometimes even poor people, um, because let's face it, um, if you're poor and you have a lousy life and you're a slave or a maid or something like this in those days, uh, where's it going? They don't believe in a heaven. Where's it going? You said, well, it's not going anywhere. This is the best you get. Well, I, I, I want to see another doctor, you know, and let me try another religion. And so, um, they, like I mentioned last week, increasingly numbers of uh, Gentiles end up uh, going to, into this, some go into Egyptian uh, cults, and that was very popular, and some go into uh, extremist uh, types of neo-Pythagoranism, what they call it, which had Egyptian roots. Uh, that would be your monks and your nuns, and those you renounce, uh, you know, life, so to speak, uh, in, in favor of pure contemplation. Um, others went the other, the exact opposite route and go into total partyism <laughs> and so that's Epicureanism and things like that, in which case the whole point of life is to grab as much pleasure as you can before you get old um, and, and, and you know uh, and, and sometimes it gets into ecstatic behavior in which you want to touch God by going and have wild crazy dances and so your soul jumps out of the body, can then uh, have contact with the greater spirit out there and so through the ecstatic uh, you know, practices uh, you'll exit, you know, you'll exit and, and, and touch, uh, shall we say, nirvana or something like that. And sometimes it's the other way around, as we'll see, uh, ends up being very popular in which you want to grab the spirit out there and hold it close to you. All kind of crazy things were going out there. One of the alternatives, 
it's like a bazaar, you know, with, with, with 30 or 40 different uh, offerings. One of the alternatives, just one, Judaism. One, the only one, is Judaism. You came to a Jewish community in Rome, in Athens, in Alexandria, in Naples, in Marseille, in Spain, and what do you see? It's a t- some is a turn off, some is a turn on. It's usually a small community, it's a family structure, it's law and order, it's a sense of right and wrong, it's a simple explanation for the origins of the universe, it's a pretty simple and makes sense explanation of what happens life after death. There, there's, there, there's none of these issues that you find in the other cults. The religion, even though Judaism can be made to look very weird, it can also, you see, when you go there, I'll give you an example. Shabbos definitely looks weird to somebody. Now when you live it, would you agree with that? Kind of makes sense. You tell someone from totally outside, strictly from a book, can't do this, can't do that, can't, can't drive a car, can't read a telephone, it, it sounds all crazy, can't tie the shoes, it's all crazy. But then when you go and you see people that live it, you say, you know, you, you end up writing a book like, uh, what's his name, uh, Lieberman. Yeah, they say it makes sense. And so people, certain people, increasing number of people, attracted to the Jewish communities, compared to the stories of Homer, the stories of the Torah, especially when presented in the way they were, like I say, by the Rabbi Franz at that time, the Matorgan ones, make a lot more sense. There's no question about right or wrong. Huh? No question about what's to do, what not to do. No, none of these gods running around like Zeus and other, shafting somebody, taking someone else's wife, playing with people. All right? So it, it's, it's attractive, or it could be. So there was a general crisis of paganism, and Judaism was one of the one, one of the uh, alternatives that were available out there, of those who looked at Judaism, some swallowed it whole hog. There were plenty of people, even the senators, like we talked about last week, like Clemens, who said, I want to be 100% Jewish. Tell me how to do convert. I want to sign up. I'm just changing my life, like Ruth of old. I'm changing my life. Others are into selective appropriation. Selective appropriation. Like Americans. <laughs> okay. What I'm trying to say is that there arose two groups of people. Those who totally converted and utterly transformed themselves and those who did not, who could not make up their minds. The three most blatant markers in those days, circumcision, kasha, shavas. Naturally. Circumcision. Painful operation if you're an adult. Also, as we saw from Tacitus, a rather disturbing marker of identity with Jews and of severing, Gentile, uh, uh, severing ties with Gentiles, severing ties with one's own family, does it turn off. Many are not prepared to take this radical step. Makes 100% sense. Kashras. Well, we saw a lot of people are into uh, challah and tuna fish on Friday night. We just saw from ju- juvenile. Meaning, I'm not prepared to give a McDonald's, but I do like the Jewish foods in, in, in the ritualistic ways. You understand? Uh, but like Americans, you know, I, I want to keep kosher, I want to keep shabbat, I want to keep everything, you know? Uh, and, and, and it becomes a marker of your commitment of whether or not you're really prepared to give up a cheeseburger, you know, or what the Roman equivalent was long ago. And some did and some didn't. Shabbos. Everybody, everyone, we have records of this, you see people complaining, everyone always liked parts of Shabbos. But they didn't like the restrictions. Everybody liked the services. Everybody liked the Torah readings. And everybody liked the general idea of taking a day off in the family context. Um, 
with the whole family there, not the kids running away somewhere else. And uh, that doesn't mean they're into uh, Bishel, Borer, you know, Schita, and all that kind of stuff. That takes a lot of commitment. What they want is a half Shabbos. And some of the more liberal Jews in those days are okay with this. They might be accepted as members of liberal communities. When I say liberal communities, in Rome or places like that, could be that there are communities where they say, if a guy's willing to keep half Shabbos, half this, that, other, we, we accept you, that's a gayrus. You're full member of Jewish community. Other communities, oh my God, more right wing. Oh no, that's, that, that, that doesn't count. He didn't do what he needs to do. They might not be accepted in former communities. Very much like today. The very firm don't like this at all. They see too many of these new people who haven't really made a commitment. Coming to show, becoming members of the community, voting in the elections, doing all that sort of thing. And they look around at the typical first century synagogue in, say, Greece or Italy, and they compose the following prayer on Shabbos. Maybe you've heard about it before. God did not bequeath the Sabbath to Gentiles. He didn't allow those who still continue to worship idols. Because he liked to go to school on Saturday, but he also liked to hear the opera in this church on Sunday. Who says people who don't undergo circumcision, males, are permitted to rest on the Sabbath? This is wrong. Only to Jewish Jews. What kind of polemic is that? What does that reflect? Who wrote that? In response to what? And then there are those who are half monotheistic. That's a little bit tricky. Okay? Um, like I say, you might like the Jewish community's Sabbath, the Passovers. You might even like their idea of God. But you also like the idea of Misra, a very popular guy at that time. Right? You, always, you also want to carry out the good luck charm you know, of Minerva or some local Egyptian deity, because my best friend, you know, she couldn't have a baby, and then she got one of these, and then she got pregnant. Or this person was sick, and he got one of these things from uh, Sparta, and it worked like a charm. And, and these Jews are saying, no, no, well, you know, it goes. The monotheistic idea is not necessarily so easy for one raised in total paganism to accept in its pure form. Get it? I mean, to say there are a bunch of gods out there, but yours is the strongest, that is something that's more comfortable to a pagan mentality. There are other things out there, but the Jewish one is the most sublime. And the Jews are saying, no, 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 there's nothing out there. It's all baloney, zero. He said, all those temples and all this religion and all the, and the massive millions and billions, of, it's all baloney. Hard to accept. You see? Hard to, to take in and, uh, what's the right word? Assimilate within oneself. I mean, what was Gairus during this period? Conversion. There's no clear answer. Not during this period. At the most, we won't have an idea. Not really. What was happening at this time, maybe in Eretz Yisrael. And there, I don't want to go into a technical discussion over here, but anybody who's a Gemara Yavamas will know that Rechemia says that you know, if anybody says he's Jewish, he's already Jewish. And I was like, that's what happened in the time of Mordechai. Rabbi Miami Haaretz Misyadim. Well, after porn, people just declared themselves Jewish, and they got a, and 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 they say, you know, uh, some uh, interpretations are they were accepted, other not accepted. They're debating this in Israel, but I can basically guarantee you, we do not know what was going on halachically 
in those territories that are referred to in the Mishnah as Medina Siyam, where they don't do the din of Lishma. All the Damara people will know what I'm talking about. Meaning that they, lots of Jewish communities, lots of them, outside of Israel, scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they don't know a lot of the laws of Judaism. So if they don't know the laws of Judaism, how are they converting anybody into Judaism? And the Talmud itself discusses cases, believe it or not, where uh, someone was converted and the Beis Din never told him about Shabbos. Okay? Okay? Did they know? They didn't? Whatever. Um, so it's a very fluid era, this period, this entire first century, and particularly after the destruction of the Temple. We, we have records of this sort of thing in the 70s, 80s, 90s, exactly the period that I'm talking about now and even past that. Uh, if this is true, you see the rise and spread, therefore, of that form of Judaism known as Christianity. Their natural population, their target population, were precisely the half-Shabbos, half-circumcised, half-monotheistic population, which existed in so many places in the Roman Empire. To the half-circumcised, Christianity said, you don't have to really physically circumcise, nearly only circumcise the heart. So you don't have to have operation. To the half-kosher, the new religion says, what goes in your mouth is not important, what comes out of your mouth is important as St. Paul tells us. To the half-monotheist, Christianity offers, under the name of Judaism, a blurring of monotheism by a wide variety of manifestations. You could say Jesus was a god, or he was not. There are different early Christian groups that battle this out. Don't go by what you know today, because that's the result of the Council of Nicaea and battles that went on in the 4th century and, and, and millions of people killed in the 5th century over these theological issues and things like this. You know, we're not aware of the wide, extremely wide variety of early Christianities, which the dominant churches later on defined as heresies, which, which in those days were not heresies to those who practiced them. Um, but the point is, Christianity as a phenomenon presents a wide variety of manifestations. He was a god, he wasn't a god, he sort of was, he is a human, he's a half-human, he's a different creature altogether. I'm not kidding when I say this. There were different the monophysites and the historians and this and that and the other. Mary is his mother. She's not his mother. She sort of is his mother. No, no, was it, what, what, what was the nature of the birth? What is, is it, that, you know? Um, now, in Judaism, this is like kind of weird, but it wasn't weird at all. It was the opposite of weird to the population that I'm talking about. That actually was much more comfortable for them to discuss and speculate upon than the Jewish thing is that. It's all baloney. You didn't feel comfortable with that. Ultimately, during this period and afterwards, Christianity survives and grows in the marketplace of ideas. I cannot stress too much the relevance or the, the, the idea of the marketplace, the market idea, the capitalist idea. In capitalism, success is defined in your market share. Agree? That's a fact. Which requires the seller to do what? To adapt the product to the public. If you have a great product, but the public's not interested in buying it, guess what? This was not centrally or cynically directed by Christian headquarters or no such thing as that. It happened organically. It's the way Judaism spread kind of organically. It was a Jewish community here, and people talked to them, and some were turned on, some were turned off. You had early communities of Christians. They may have been Jews who considered them Christians, however they call it. And in Egypt or in Greece or here and there, and people talk to them and they talk to them, and you know, some people turn on by ideas, some people turn off by ideas. But as a missionary faith, and Judaism wasn't missionary, but the Christians were missionary from early on, you see, this kind of approach doesn't work, this kind of approach does work. There may be another Christian sect or group that doesn't you know, have this attitude, 
or this particular theological doctrine, but it works over here, and, 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 and therefore it goes. And if it spreads, literally, like the business model. It's, it's really capitalism. Matter of fact, one of the most, it's, it's famous, notorious if you want, one of the most famous salesmen in American history, Bruce Barton, back in the 1920s, uh, who was a good Christian, uh, and, and, and one of the inventors of, Wall Street, um, of uh, Madison Avenue, wrote a book called The Greatest Salesman Who Ever Lived, The Story of St. Paul. And he meant it well. I mean, in other words, he was a Republican capitalist. He was trying to show the early roots of capitalism. And he wasn't wrong in many respects. Um, there are, as I mentioned before, a lot of Egyptian religious influences in the Roman Empire. Uh, Cleopatra. But what, long before she came along, there are lots of Romans who say, you know, this one was sick and that was sick. And the Roman gods didn't do the trick, but we called an Egyptian priest or priestess or something like that. And uh, we burned three cats and it worked, you know. Uh, they did it. And so there's a lot of this flung around, particularly in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, which was Greek-speaking and ever since the time of Alexander the Great had been a funny intermixture of Greek ideas with Egyptian ideas moving together, perhaps in a bastardized form, perhaps in other forms, and very, very, very common and very popular. Their syncretistic connection to Judaism was attractive to many. Now, not to some Jews, not to Jewish Jews. It would horrify a regular Jew. But it was the opposite to many people out there. Um, what looked weird to a regular Jew looked just right to many a pagan who was looking for half-Judaism with which he or she could feel comfortable. Mamash was a Goldilocks situation. Right? This, uh, the Judaism is too much this, pagans too much this, and this is just right. And uh, it offered, most importantly, a half-monotheism and a half-particularism. The half-monotheism came to crystallize around the notion of a trinity, eventually, that was really was one at the same time, three and one, one is three. It may be weird to a Jew, but very comfortable to someone looking for just enough Judaism to have the benefits of monotheistic belief, like one transcendental, non-physical God, a just world, reward and punishment, ultimate purpose in life, but it was at the same time combined with comfortable notions of a God who can be swallowed and whose blood can be drunk, Who's, where idols and images are mutter and celebrated and even worshipped, and where belief replaces de deeds, you do not have to do anything to go ahead, you just have to believe. These are very popular, or they proved historically to be very popular ideas. I can only say they're popular because a lot of people got into it. And these are things that Judaism, you know, wasn't halfway about, and therefore didn't feel comfortable with these whole notions. The Egyptian idea is, as I said before, one of, the, one of the famous Egyptian ideas is you're worried about the God shouldn't run away from you. So one way is to get a, an idol and hold it here, and one is to tie it around your neck, and one is to tie it around your heart, and that way nobody can grab it. But actually, somebody can grab it. The ultimate to this, which developed in Egypt long before the time of Alexander the Great, is to eat your God. That way, he's become part of you, and, and nobody can take him away from you. Okay? I know it's strange to a Jew, I'm trying, but take yourself out of your glasses and put in the glasses of the people I'm talking about 2,000 years ago. What's interesting is, again, part of, as we know, of mainstream Christianity. You can't imagine, and it's, it's the central uh, ritual even today of Catholicism and, and certain other uh, forms of Christianity, as, as we all know. And, you know, to a Jew, he said, where'd you get that from? In other words, that's not another way of twisting something out of the Old Testament. But if you know the times in which they lived, it's one of those ideas that got out there that sold like crazy. And were very popular uh, until the Protestant Reformation and even afterwards. Because you know, Martin Luther and the others, without going into Christian theology, didn't reject the idea. They just said it doesn't happen literally, but it happens spiritually and physically. And so, um, 
this new combination is really spreading little by little all over the, not the Jewish world so much. It is in the Jewish world, but it's not so much in the Jewish world. It's in the half-Jewish world, if I can use that term, which was all over the place during this time, even though the temple was destroyed, even though Judea had been crushed, and even though this and that and the other. It's interesting that a guy like Flavius Clemens would be interested in Judaism. Early Christian uh, scholars claim no, even though it says he was persecuted for Jewish belief, really he was a Christian. Well, we'll never know. But it seems, based on you tie it together with the Gemara stories, that it was Judaism. Um, even more important than half monotheism was what I call half particularism. Uh, if you join up, you're a fully equal member. That's the message of Christianity. The, act, the fact that Jesus was Jewish is increasingly downplayed. He came to save everyone. And the fact that he was Jewish is a fact was just interesting, but not crucial. And this is a trend that develops and becomes fully crystallized in Christianity. This was different from classical Gairus, Jewish conversion, in which the Jewish ethnic element is basic. In Jewish culture, there were debates, actually, in the Mishnah and places like that, can someone who's a Geir say, Different opinions out there. The end is, they say, you can say it, but, you know, it goes to show you, yeah, you, but you just joined yesterday. <laughs> you see? Uh, who are you? And it's interesting that someone would be willing to sign up on these terms. There were, but you can understand if Christianity comes along, it's a much more attractive option. The Geir is becoming an adopted member of the family, which is a whole trip. In the new Christianity, this was not the case. You sign up your full member. Actually, in this era, to be perfectly honest, it still was remnants of this. In the 70s, 80s, 90s, the early first, early second century, there still was a rule in Christianity that Jewish Jews, Jewish Christians come before Gentile Christians. And you could only be a bishop, for example, for a long time if you were Jewish. But the trend was in the other direction, and not too long after the Bar Rebellion, they tossed that one. And that is well known in, 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 in church history. But the internal dynamics of the market share, as I said before, were against all this kind of ethnicity and exclusiveness, is Jewish racism and all that. And after Bakoch rebellion, I told you, all this stuff was dropped. Which leads us finally to the most complex and controversial piece of this pie, of this entire discussion, which is Messianism. Judaism not only involves a belief in God and the laws, the nominism, the halachas, it also involves a very specific vision of the future. Correct? Uh, this is, the Ram tells a basic. Now, you understand what I'm saying? One could be a philosophical monotheist, and that wouldn't necessarily make him Jewish. If you're Jewish, you not only believe that one God created the world and all that sort of thing, but you also believe there's going to be a better future one day, a utopia. Is Judaism a utopian religion? Darn right it is. Or are you tossing out all the Nevi'im and everything? This world is, it's a utopian vision, forms a hinterland for everything we believe, to be perfectly honest, how we act. Obviously, we all know this world is terribly imperfect. I think everyone agrees to that. This cannot be the best that God can come up with. But one day, there will be a better world, a perfect world. The leader in this effort will be an anointed member of the House of David, Malchus based of it, who will be both victorious and righteous. More than that, well, the details were never spelled out exactly. The VM speaking it's in a way about it, it's unclear. It come in violence, it come in peace. It'll be literally the lion will lie down the limb figuratively. Da, da, I don't know exactly. 
different machlokis in the time of the Talmud, different machlokis ever since then, but it's going to be good. It's going to be some kind of utopia. One thing we know for sure, beginning around the year 70 or so, or excuse me, 70 years or so before the Chorban Beis Amigdash, before the destruction of the Second Temple, when the existential situation of the Jews in Israel was so bad and did not look to be getting better, the Messianic idea came to be more and more popular with the result that many stepped forth and claimed to be Mashiach. This is recorded in Josephus as well as in other places. Uh, really, in the 40, 50 years before the destruction of the Temple, when, when things were really, really bad, and you know, we're stuck with the Romans, we're stuck with the corrupt governors that they have, we're stuck with the Herodian Mafia. We've got to do something about this, but you can't do anything about it. The cards are stacked against you. God is going to help us. How is it going to help us? Somebody, true, we can't defeat Rome through natural means, but we will find a leader that heaven will send who will enable us to defeat Rome miraculously. It will happen. If you don't believe it, you're of little faith, you're a coward, and so forth. Um, you look at the Suetonius, I think we have over there, right? There? Uh, in ancient, yeah. Suetonius, who, who again writes in the, right after the death of Domitian, he says, an ancient superstition was current in the East that out of Judea would come the rulers of the world. This prediction is later proved, proved referred to two Roman emperors, Vespasian and Titus. That's his explanation. But the rebellious Jews who read it as referring to themselves murdered their procurator, routed the governor general of Syria when he came to restore order, and captured an eagle, which was a big insult to Rome. To crush this, they needed a strong, uh, energetic commander, and this fell into Spatian. Meaning, even, even Suetonius, who's a Roman Roman, knew about the messianic predictions that are coming out of the East. That some Jewish messiah is going to come forth and rescue everything. And obviously, this played a big role, as he puts it. He's absolutely right play a big role, and eventually the zealots and the others saying, we can take one Rome. How are you going to take one Rome? How can Israel declare one Russia? Oh, well, we can do it. He said, but the odds are against you. The Maccabees did it. Moshe Rabbeinu did it. We can do it. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. But I say, whoa, you can say, oh, you coward. You chicken. You, you, you understand? This is, eventually, this, eventually this will lead to the Bakoko Rebellion. Eventually, this will lead to the Bar Rebellion. As we, they obviously, they were false messiahs. Um, by the way, if there was a Jesus, meaning putting the historicity of all that sort of thing aside, because there's no actual historical records for this, but putting that aside, uh, it would fit in like a glove to what we know from Josephus about these 40, 50 years prior to the year 70, to the outbreak of the war in Rome. Uh, everybody, I mean, lots of people are stepping forth and claiming Mashiach. Jesus is a guy who says, follow me, like Peter Penn, they're going to fly off, the, uh, off the, the walls of Jerusalem and fly to Rome and bomb it, and they jumped off and they all got killed. And I remember another guy led them into the water saying, if we go with sufficient faith till the water is above our heads, it'll split like at the time of Moses, and they all got drowned. And, you know, things like that. Uh, there's a funny thing about religion. Anything you say, you'll get some followers. Right? It, 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 it's weird. Somebody declares on Mashiach, it's not true that nobody, everybody will think he's crazy. Most will think he's crazy. Some will take up. That's the history. That's what history shows us. That's what history shows us. It's funny. You understand? So anyway, um, the zealots that started the war with Rome continue fighting for... Are we now not in the period of the three weeks? What is the three weeks? I mentioned the other day. When she was Thomas, the beginning of the three weeks, the Romans, listen to this, broke into the Temple Mount. So the Roman army was already 
having taken most of Jerusalem, was up on the base of Migdash. No, they were in the Temple Mount, and the Jews are in the base of Migdash, holding out. Where is this going? Even at that point, the Romans offer him surrender terms. No. Why are you doing that? Where is it going? Even on the 7th or 8th of Av, when the Romans have flattened everything and brought the siege engines up to batter against the wall of the temple itself and to try to take it by storm. So in other words, it's over. No, it's not over. Even when the Romans burn the door down because they, put, they torch it and the blood and the uh, gold melts down and then the, then the wood uh, takes some fire. It's August after all. It's hot and dry. Uh, so, the, so the front part of the temple is burning. They, they fight on. Where is it going? This is, this is the dangerous power of messianism. You get it? We just, we, we just say reality is, is, is not something I'm interested in. Remember this as we explore this episode of the Rakhokhba era. Um, and so, not surprisingly, after the basement was destroyed, after Jerusalem was destroyed, after so many killed and all the rest of it, the sages who saved their lives and gathered in Yavna and place like that, they try to avoid political discussions. And they seem to have deprecated immediate messianic speculations. I would say this is very typical of the rabbinic model in the Talmud. Uh, there's exceptions, but generally speaking, you believe in the Mashiach, but don't ask no questions when, where, and how. Uh, you don't even know if you want to be there when it happens. It could be an apocalyptic time, like it says in the book of Daniel. You know, let him come. I don't want to be there. Let, just call me when it's over. Meaning, meaning you should definitely not give up hope. Not at all. It's a central belief of the Jewish people. God will do it in his own time. Don't jump the gun, because if you do it wrong, you'll end up like the zealots. And then when you get hooked in that mentality, you're fighting even though they've taken half the temple and the rest of the country. So it's tricky. I mean, the sages did hold of the concept of a shield. It's a very tricky stance, very much reflected in the famous midrash or rabbinic teaching, the Gadata, which they encapsulate in, in the Shir Hashirim, which is the love song between the boy and the girl or God and Israel. What does the long love song say? This, this is the Bible of Satmar, what I'm saying here. I make you swear, daughters of Jerusalem, don't push for the consummation of our love until it's ready. Right? Don't get involved in anything premature. However, you want to interpret that. But that's what they meant. How do they say it? They say politically. Politically. It's not just a romantic business. It's a very dangerous political thing. Let it ripen until the situation is correct. And not a second before. And so the great question was, of course, who will be the Messiah? Who will be the Mashiach? Is he already there? Is he waiting like they got it? This is at the gates of Rome, waiting to be called by God to carry his mission. And what exactly is the nature and the mission of the Mashiach? Will he simply drive the Romans out and set up a model Torah state? Or will he end history itself and usher in a miraculous era of Tchis HaMesim? Will he be political? Will he be religious? Will he be rational? Will he be mystical? No consensus. Very typical Judaism. We know it's going to happen. Different opinions of how it's going to happen. Because the future hasn't happened. One thing the Jews had a consensus on, and listen to this closely, a particularistic Messiah. 
The Mashiach will be there for the Jews. His task is national. It's the liberation of the Jewish homeland, restoration of the Jewish state, rebuilding of the Jewish temple. And what if the people are not Jewish? Well, they too will benefit, but it's a spillover. <laughs> In other words, the Messianic vision, though it does contain important universalistic elements, it says, the world be full of knowledge of God like, like, like the rivers overflow, like the sea overflows, the line will lie down land. There'll be no more war. There are universalistic aspects to it, but nevertheless it's primarily a particularistic vision. It's mainly for the Jews. You guys will also benefit. Why aren't you happy that you'll also get... And the answer is, why is it for you? You, you. What's the business God likes you? What's that all about? Now, once again, this particularistic utopia was not calculated to win the enthusiastic interest of non-Jews, is it? But the Jewish Jews didn't care about that, and they didn't care how others saw it. If you're a half-monotheist, if in general you like Judaism but you don't like Jews, you kind of feel the Messiah is not going to care that much about you, not the way the Jews tell it, because you're not one of the chosen people. On the other hand, the idea of a Messiah, of a heaven-sent person who comes rid the whole world, of all injustice and junk, is a powerful one that touches something deep down in every thinking and feeling human being. But why does he have to be so particularistic? Why isn't he equally concerned with Gentiles? Why can't the Messiah be different? Why can't we redesign him and improve him and produce a, a Messiah who's properly universal? Well, the market share-driven early Christians looking for recruit did that. That's exactly what they did. Didn't they? By the time they finished their evolution, by the time the Christian religion sort of veers off from Judaism, classical Judaism, and crystallizes its message, Jesus will be repackaged not as the king of the Jews, the man will be the next Jew to Maccabee or Bakalcha, but rather as the savior of mankind. Is he Jewish? Was he a Jew? Well, sort of. I mean, if you say he's divine, then he wasn't merely human, then he wasn't exactly really Jewish. Did you, you see, you see where, how, it, how it unfolds? Um, funny. On the other hand, he was born among the Jewish people. On the other hand, the Jews rejected him as a funny. On the other hand, it would be par for the course for the Jews to do that, because the Bible shows us how the Jews were always faithless to their God. And they, read the Old Testament. On the other hand, the prophets predict a glorious future for the Jewish people with a Davidic monarchy. On the other hand, maybe the term Jewish people may, needs to be redefined to mean the Christians, etc., etc., etc. And so it was a theologian's paradise. But for the layman, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, just one grand, uh, how's the expression go? A thousand flowers can bloom. You see what I mean? You see the outlines of the evolution of Christianity away from Judaism as the former, the Christians, gain ever and ever greater market share. And look how complicated Judaism is and Jewish history is during this particular period of history. That's what I'm trying to get across tonight. For their part, the Jewish people led by the sages were very hostile to what they regarded as a heresy. The sages were quite aware that in the aftermath of the destruction, with the continuing prosperity of the Roman Empire, which will not go away, the Jewish people will increasingly long for a Mashiach into a traditional Jewish sense. They will long for a Mashiach who will lead the people to miraculous victory over Rome, national liberation, the rebuilding of the base of English, the return of the Shekhinah, and who knows, maybe the end of evil, maybe the end of time. Resurrection, who knows? The mood in the Jewish street and the, certainly after the immediate impact of the Roman conquest, by the time you get to the 90s, shall we say, 
the worst is, is over, it's, it's 20 years in the past, the mood in the Jewish street increasingly, especially in Eretz Yisrael, but in many other places as well, is, we want Mashiach now. And it's not a Lababish word or anything like that. That's the good. We want Mashiach now. Mamish. And, and, I, and it was very powerful out there. And the sages are scared of this. Everybody wants Mashiach now. But don't let it turn into something that will lead you to destruction once again. Haven't we learned our lesson? But that takes a certain mentality. It also takes being over 30 years old, over 40 years old. Young people don't want to hear that. This is politics. When the people say, we want Mashiach now, it's not religion. Do you get what I'm saying? If you're living in the time of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Gamli and the others, so they say, we want Mashiach now, that's not religion, that's politics. That's the very thing the sages are straining to avoid given the present battered state of the Jewish people and the power of the Roman Empire. It's not fun to be a realist, but somebody's got to do it. It's not fun to be an adult, but somebody's got to do it. Can't all be kids. Will the people listen and remain calm and just pray? Or will they get actively meshichist? <laughs> and the hell with what the Romans think. That is something we'll talk about in three days. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.